Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network's Middle East Studies podcast. I'm Ruben Silverman, a researcher at Stockholm University's Institute for Turkish Studies, and with me is Elise Massacard. Professor Massacard is a senior researcher at the National Center for Scientific Research. Her first book, The Levies in Turkey and Europe, Identity and Managing Territorial Diversity, was published in 2012. In addition, she has co-edited several collected volumes, including, most recently, Contemporary Populists in Power, Today, we will be discussing her new book, Street-Level Governing, Negotiating the State in Urban Turkey, by Stanford University Press, which looks at mukhtars, local elected officials in Turkey who carry a variety of bureaucratic functions and, therefore, occupy an intriguingly hybrid position in Turkey's political landscape. So, first, I'd like to welcome you, Professor, and ask you if you can tell us a little bit about your background. What brought you to the study of Turkey in general, and Mukhtar's more specifically? Yes, thank you for these questions. Uh, well, actually, um, I began working on actually studying Turkology and political science together. Um, and, and the reason why I was interested in, in you know, Turkology, Turkish studies, is you know, that I was uh, interested in the Middle East and who was actually seem to be very close to Europe, Turkey, and also um, more easy to research. And um, that's how I became interested in in Turkish studies at the very beginning. That was back in the 90s, 1990s. Um, And then actually it's interesting how how I became interested in Mukhtars because I did my master's thesis on Uzbekistan. For, uh, I don't remember for which reasons back then, because Turkey studies, I, I had also kind of, you know, uh, had to take courses in Central Asian studies. And so I, I did some um, research on Uzbekistan and, and I studied there um, actually the neighborhoods. And it was in the 90s, it was uh, shortly after Uzbekistan had became, become independent. And there was a kind of this a big, you know, like state building uh, period. And um, and there what, what had interested me is how the official institutions tried to grasp the um, unofficial uh, neighborhood organizations that were very powerful in, in Uzbekistan. And so I had this interest in in that kind of interplay between state institutions and social institutions and how they had become um, officialized and institutionalized in the kind of administrative hierarchy. And um, that's actually the way I became then interested in Mutars in Turkey too, because then I decided to work more on Turkey and to leave Central Asia, and, and I, I realized that was we had actually kind of um, similar uh, things in Turkey with, with Mukhtars and uh, neighborhoods, Mahales, which are in, in Uzbekistan, Mahalas. <laughs> so uh, I was really, uh, actually at the beginning, I was very astonished because I had this, um, you know, this... Um, Kind of idea that the Turkish state is a very strong state, is a very like bureaucratic state, is a very established state, and and you know in, in Uzbekistan it was as I said this period of state building, new institutions being created, uh, trying to you know rest on on what they was considered as traditional structures etc. But it was not the, the uh, same situation in Turkey. Turkey was very much, you know, old state established, and and so I was struck by that. Um, and that more generally, the reason why I became interested in in Mukhtars and those neighborhood um, headmen is because um, 
this general opinion that the Turkish state is very strong, is a very, you know, autonomous from society, this is a very widespread idea. Uh, also in the academic literature. And, and what I had seen in my previous researches, for example, on the Alevi movements or uh, other research on, on, you know, on the uh, MPs and parties, I was not very convinced that the Turkish state was so much, you know, autonomous from society, very like uh, imposing some order on society. It was, I was not very satisfied with that. And also with some colleagues of mine, historians, sociologists, geographers, etc., we were many to be not to to, have, to we were like of, uh, wanting to question that idea, and and then we launched a a, a broader project on the uh, well, basically on on uh, patterns of governance in Turkey and the late Ottoman Empire. This is a book actually; it became a book, um, and 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 I. In my personal research, I decided to to work really on on Muhtars because um, it was you know um, about questioning the autonomy of the Turkish state in relationship with society. Uh, so I wanted to look precisely at where uh, the state meets society, uh, and then um, I think that the Muhtars uh, were interesting for me in that respect because they were very versatile connection points because they deal also with different areas and of activities they are not specialized you know in some domain uh, and 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 you know they are kind of a kind of a multifunctional bridge or something between or connection point between state and society and there i also wanted to look at the you know how uh, citizens in turkey experience the state on an everyday Basis. I wanted to go beyond, you know, looking at state-society relations. This is, a, I mean, this um, questioning in terms of state-society relations is very interesting and has been worked on very much. And but mostly, it has been worked on, you know, by looking at um, conflictual settings, or um, like, for example, in the uh, Kurdish provinces or conflict areas, etc. I wanted to look at the everyday where not, nothing really happens, but you know, the normal kind of everyday battle, ordinary uh, kind of experiencing of the state and how people deal with the institutions. And there I found that Muhtars were actually quite interesting um, um, entry perspective into that broader questioning because actually the questioning of the book is on that is on is on, on state society relations and, and um, what I call governing from below and so that was how I became interested in Muhtars and and the more I did this research the more I became interested actually because I was not expecting at the beginning uh, the richness of what I would actually observe uh, on the ground. Well, so before we get into what you observed on the ground, maybe you can give a little uh, explanation of Mukhtar's. Uh, what is this position and what has it been historically up till, say, the early 2000s, the aughts, when you started doing your research? Yeah, actually, what is striking also is that Muhtar, or let's say the institution of Muhtar Luk, is uh, probably the oldest still functioning institution in Turkey, because it has been created in the 1830s, and it still exists and works today, operates very differently, of course, but if you, it, it's striking because, uh, I mean, Ottoman and Turkish history has gone through so many ruptures, and institutions have broken down so, so many times, and you see this continuity. And, and so I, this also struck me. Um, um, so what are they? This is a very uh, basic question, but actually not so basic. Let me explain. Actually, what interests me is that Muhtars actually don't fit really into any box they don't fit in the classical categories of political sociology. And that's also what interested me. And I call them hybrids at some point, I think, in the book. Because um, well, uh, in the 1830s, uh, in the course of, you know, big reforms in the Ottoman Empire, 
reforms of the administrative apparatus um, and the formation of new bureaucratic formalities and the reconfiguration of state hierarchies. This was part of this broader trend. Um, and so the formation of Murtalev is broadly analyzed in the literature in terms of bureaucratization and sometimes also modernization. And um, because actually from the beginning, Murtars were kind of, you know, connected to the state apparatus because their functions, most of their functions actually was linked to the central authorities. So basically they were kind of officials on the very, uh, on the ground, on the very local level, like on the neighborhood level or village level with a, a, a strong connection to the state. Um, and so their main responsibility from the quite the beginning, actually, there were some you know, developments, but basically it's, it has a big continuity. And their main responsibility was to ensure order in the neighborhood or in the village and safety. And so also uh, to denounce suspect people or uh, yeah, suspect activities to security forces. And also they had to implement the laws and the regulations. And they had, uh, after a while, they have been responsible for keeping the civil records etc etc so they seem to be you know this fits very much in this broad history of modernization of the state like the state becoming also organized in a very low at a very local level and so um that is uh, one dimension but that is only one dimension of the, what muhtars are because what interested me is that they are not really i mean they are not strictly speaking bureaucrats at least not in the Weberian sense. They have many, many things uh, differ from bureaucrats. First, because they, um, uh, for decades, they have not been paid. They had no salary, which was actually not an exception for Ottoman officials. Many Ottoman officials did not have kind of what we would interpret as a salary. And But but after a while, the salary for officials became a rule in the Ottoman uh, Empire, but not for Mukhtars. And then under the Republic, um, they also had no salary until the 70s. So as a consequence, it means that Mukhtars are, you know, they have other means of, 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 of uh, getting paid. Um, or other professional activities. So they are not specialized, no, they are not kind of professionals like we would uh, uh, expect from a bureaucrat. And another uh, very important dimension is that they are elected by the local people, by the inhabitants, the residents of the neighborhood or the village. Uh, so basically they are administrators of the electors, uh, which is a very uh, complicated position. Um, so they are temporary also because of being elected, they are temporary. And from this perspective, Muhtar's, uh, you know, um, look like more like elected officials, like uh, municipal councillors or something like this. But again, they are different from those kind of elected, you know, politicians or officials. Um, and for example, they don't have the authority to represent their population the population of their neighborhood. Uh, and, and they also don't have any more, uh, you know, a party affiliation since 1980, since the coup, actually. Uh, so they are not normal, like local elected people. They have, they are a kind of in between, you know, position at the very local level. So very much embedded in local society, but still very much connected to the state. And so, I think this is um, what what interested me at the beginning. So this is intriguing, this situation I found at, at least, but this also raises interesting scientific questions. Uh, and especially what roused my interest most is, is related to the fact that Muhtars are precisely situated at the very intersection of bottom-up and top-down logics. So I thought this made them a very heuristic observation point for understanding the state-society uh, relations. And also, this is a kind of figure that I studied in Turkey, but there are actually many of such 
you know, figures of local intermediaries in the Middle East and actually also beyond the Middle East. In the post-Ottoman world, you find Mukhtars in, in, in several places. You found Mukhtars in Lebanon, you found Mukhtars in Cyprus, you found Mukhtars in Iraq, and, 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 and with some differences also in other places. So, and this very, you know, very local intermediaries have hardly been studied in the literature. They, but they, I think they are very important in the everyday making of states and politics in those places. So, um, more broadly, I, I, I wanted to, to try to grasp this and, and to look at this. Well, you know, in describing Mukhtars, you even refer to them as uh, notables, which, you know, sometimes in Middle East studies, notable conjures up this idea of powerful, local elite figure. But you're getting at something um, a little more precise with the term. So maybe you can discuss this idea of Mukhtars as notables. And uh, how do you see it illustrated in their relationships with their neighborhood and electorate? Who are Mukhtars? What makes them notables? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I really, it was one of the questions that made me busy for, for years, maybe. One of the main reasons why I call them notables, I call them small notables, <laughs> but uh, is that uh, they they... There are two dimensions of related. They are related. The first dimension is that Mukhtars are embedded in society. That's what very interested me. The social embeddedness of, of the state and what that produces in political terms. Uh, and the role of the Mukhtar is precisely defined by the Mukhtar's proximity with the residents and his embeddedness in the local society. So this is, of course, a geographical proximity because the Mukhtar is supposed to live in the neighborhood. This is also a social uh, proximity because the Mukhtars are not like very much educated people or they are not elite kind of elite people. They are, you know, um, not anybody, but they are also not the very uh, top of the society, uh, even of the local society. Most of them are you know, quite you know, close to socially in terms of education, in terms of occupation, um, quite close to the society of their neighborhood. And this is also a relational proximity. And this is very, very clue, very, very, sorry, this is very key for me, this relational proximity. What I mean by this is the social connectedness. Mukhtar's role for the state institutions is to be much connected to the society and that they have the possibility to get information about anything that happens in the neighborhood or village. Um, and the, uh, even if they don't know all the people directly, to get, you know, to, to have some information through a limited number of, 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 of intermediaries. And this is crucial. This is crucial because um, if you, um, this is where we understand the very uh, specificity of the Mukhtar or uh, seminal figures. Like the Mukhtar in his role is to provide, for example, certificates especially certificates of residency or poverty certificates, and uh, to prove the status of individuals in the neighborhood uh, and to prove that to different state institutions. So the Mukhtar basically uh, delivers um, certificates. So how does the Mukhtar does that, do that? He does that on the um, basis of his evaluation of each case on the basis of his supposed knowledge of the people uh, and their daily life and life conditions. So basically, this is very different from what we have in, uh, um, for example, many European societies where you have to prove, for example, how much you earn and your, you know, your status by official, uh, you know, papers and documents. Because basically, the Mukhtar issues those documents. So he is a production he is a productor of, of uh, official documents, and it is on the basis of his experiential knowledge of the people, relationship um, to the people. So 
um, he plays they play a key role in the official certification um, of the state of things and people. And this is important, especially also in a context where uh, a significant amount of social phenomena are not, you know, um, officially registered or are undeclared, like like undeclared work, undeclared buildings, etc. Um, and so, they, this experience, this is, I, I mean, this is important in, in order to understand to what extent the Turkish state actually relies on experiential knowledge of those kind of elected individual and not only on registered, standardized, computerized knowledge. And this is, I think this is very important. Now I come back to your question on notable, sorry. So what I wanted to stress with that word of notables is, is twofold. First, what I just said, the relational dimension of their work and, and the uh, uh, importance of their relationship to their world in terms of social connectedness. That's the first dimension, and that's also, I mean, the basic definition of the notables is also their social ambiguous. And the second dimension is their function as an intermediary between state institutions, let's say, and society. And this is a more like organizational dimension, uh, an organizational definition of notables. That's what I wanted also to uh, stress, the fact that relationship with the state may be mediated, uh, maybe not only, you know, again, based on uh, general regulations, rules and laws and, and data, but also mediated by individuals and by individuals that people elect, which is important. This will, and also it is a, um, to use the term of notables, which has been so much used uh, in, in uh, literature, especially in the Middle East, is also a way to stress continuities with the past. Because if you look at historiography on Turkey, you see that uh, the, word, the, the concept of notables is hardly used anymore because basically notables are considered to be uh, something of the past, you know, something that disappeared with the modernization of Turkey and bureaucratization, etc. And I don't think this is, uh, I think this is only part of the picture. So I, I wanted to stress another part of the picture. And in that respect, I am very much uh, inspired. I was very much inspired by the works of Michael Minter, for example, was you know who studied uh, the continuity of notables and dynasties of notables, um, and how they mediate um, while well, these different dimensions of state society, state part, uh, sorry, party society relations. And so the, he stopped his work in the sixties, uh, but so I wanted to, you know, to stress those continuities. But also, uh, I, I don't, I didn't, I don't want to essentialize, you know, um, this this dimension. And, and part of the book is about, you know, how Mukhtars are this kind of very local intermediaries, but basically the broader context is bureaucratized and. Uh, is computerized, etc. So how this works together, because it does work together. So how this, this basic, you know, um, uh, reflection, and many people think that Mukars should disappear now. We have computers and, and etc. Data, databases, etc. And so they they are not functional anymore, and they are considered as a kind of of, of uh, remain of the past, but that should disappear in the, in the next years, or and and this is an argument that comes over and over again. And um, actually, Mukhtars had been uh, disappeared from official um, institutions in the 1930s, in the very hard uh, period of modernization of the one-party regime, and that was a low. Uh, prohibiting Mukhtars and saying, you know, like now we have a kind of working uh, municipal administration, so we don't need Mukhtars anymore. And what is very interesting is that there were so many things that were not functioning that they reintroduced Mukhtars after 10 years or so in 1944. So 
there was this idea that mutars are, you know, something of the past, but that didn't work without them. So it's interesting to see that, you know, <laughs> that episode. And now this discourse of mutars, you know, they are, they are remain of the past and they will disappear. Did you hear this over and over again? But that's not what I observed because what I observed is that they are still very much, you know, asked for by people and even by state institutions that, you know, rely on them, on their, on their knowledge. And so they are, in a way, I don't like this word because I'm not a functionalist, but they are, they have some functions that they are considered useful by lots of people. And so, and so they work in interplay with this general landscape of, of databases and computerized modes of, of governing people, but they still have a role there and it of course it changed and it is uh, changing, but it hasn't disappeared and I'm not sure it will disappear in the, in the next years, but we will see. Well, you know, when you're saying this, it reminds me though, there's, there's a follow-up I think I'd like to ask you, which is that, so before someone becomes a Mukhtar, before they step into this role and start performing these functions, what sort of jobs do people do before they become Mukhtars? You're not born into it, are you? What, what, what sort of uh, social positions, social roles are they performing before they, their position starts? Yeah, that's a good question because uh, I, I just say that not anybody becomes a Mukhtar, that it was not very precise. Actually, uh, it's interesting because they get elected by the residents. So they have to win an election and, uh, and they are not supposed to uh, run on the party tickets. They don't run on party tickets, even if they may have some relationships with parties. So that means that they are elected as individuals. So how can you be elected in a village or a neighborhood with, uh, okay, I mean, the size of the re re number of residents can really vary from like 200 to like 80,000. Of course, it's not the same kind of election. But then you have to be well known. The first thing is that, if, you know, if you're not a nobody, uh, it's very hard to be elected a Mokta. Maybe it's important to say that these elections are very competitive. There are many, many people who want to become Mukhtars. So it's a very uh, fierce competition in most places. So that's also important to keep in mind because we tend to consider that position as unimportant, very low level, etc. But still, it seems to be a desirable position. So um, coming back to your question, what do they do? So that you have to be well known. You have to be known a little bit and have a good reputation. So you're not born into it, but actually it is quite often that it becomes, that Mutarik is a, a, a family issue. It is quite often that Mutarik is inherited from, you know, in the family, from father to son or daughter to uncle and nephew, etc. It It is quite often, it's not always the case, but still, I mean, and he, who becomes a Mutarik, mostly people, either from important families, when I say important families, again, it's not the richest, it's not the most educated, but it's like settled families in the neighborhoods. Of course, depending on the social composition of the neighborhoods, this has different meanings or different um, variations. But basically, if you are in neighborhoods, I, I work only in Istanbul, I work only on urban neighborhoods. I didn't, uh, the book is not about village Muhtar. Uh, it, it's in Istanbul, if you are in a neighborhood with many people, where many people have come from you know, the provinces, which is the case of, mo of the most neighborhoods in Istanbul, then Mukhtars are people you know, from the first families that were settled here, there, so in the 60s or 70s, basically. So settled families and families and people who have contacts, who are known because they have uh, links to the people. So as in terms of occupations, this means, for example, uh, use many grocers becoming workers or people doing uh, real estate like uh, uh, agencies or people that are every, on everyday basis in contact with people and, and uh, giving services to people or pe sometimes also another profile of workers is people getting involved 
before becoming Mukhtar's, getting involved in like associations of the neighborhood or association of their uh, um, hometown association, like Hemşehri Dernekleri, as they say, Turkish, or you know, the people that are active, you know, in the everyday life, in, in the uh, and, and in contact with a relationship with people and yeah uh, and and quite well of people actually because you, you have to do a campaign and this is sometimes a little bit you know expensive depending on the size of the neighborhood so well different several but not anybody can become a Mokhtari and they have to get a, have a good reputation and also what makes uh, the profile also different from other elected people like municipal councillor is that it relates it relates very much on their individual like sources and what is always the case if mutars are elected people that are able to be elected mutars are people who are able to build local coalitions in the local society so so this means they have this ability before becoming mutars and so you see that they are elected on on, uh, on cleavages, on localized cleavages that are not the same than um, than the municipal elections, for example. It's very interesting because Muktas are elected at the same very same day with the other local elected people like the municipal councillors or mayors and so on. And but what you say, if you look at what you see, if you look at the um, statistics, it's not a copy of the party political uh, uh, results. Uh, there are other logics, other dynamics, and so this election is partly, only partly, because there are still, you know, uh, sometimes party political dimensions. But it's 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 a not kind of partly autonomous. Uh, level of of very local politics related, but loosely related to party politics. Sometimes more, sometimes less, but still, you know. And here you have very localized uh, issues, and that makes it very interesting because it's partly autonomous and very hard to research. Also, because in every single place it may be different, and also because what I didn't say at the beginning. Uh, it is not, there are no real, there are no records of, you know, Mokhtar's activities and elections, there are no, no data, there are not published data on Mokhtar's election. So, um, it's um, challenging, actually, uh, to research. And so, as you say, as you asked me the, about the kind of occupations that people have before becoming Mokhtar's, well, you know, it's very, there is no aggregated data, so it is always challenging to try to find an answer to those kind of questions. And uh, we don't have, you know, like statistics or so, but um, so it's documentation is, is kind of an issue uh, for this kind of question. Well, so the way you describe them, these Mukhtars, they're very, they're socially close to the neighborhoods in which they're located. And at the same time, their, their role is to communicate the issues in that neighborhood, the interests in that neighborhood, upwards. So they're in, this, they're in this middle position. So how do you see them negotiating these pressures they're feeling from the people around them and the people above them in order to create these, uh, these coalitions that you say are necessary for them? How do they do this? What strategies do they use? Yeah, that's a very good question. I, you know, I started actually my research with the, the question in mind. So, they're in between state and society. Do they act as, you know, um, representatives of the state, uh, like implementing state interests on society, or on the contrary, do they operate as channels of, of the people and, and representing the interests and the demands of the people? This is a very hard question. Um, uh, I ended up changing actually my questioning in the end in the book. I, I finished by uh, trying to uh, to understand the, what is the but what does it produce in political terms? Um, this kind of governing, what does that produce? But um, in order to answer your question, yeah, I think it's a very 
um, they have to, they are dealing all the time. Uh, this is, first, it is important to know that mutas are not very much controlled by the official hierarchy. Um, they, it's little codified what they have to do, etc. There are no records. It's, it's, they have some kind of, you know, kind of freedom in, to a certain extent. But the way uh, Mukhtars operate it and, and the way citizens use the Mukhtars or recourse, have recourse to the Mukhtars, this is very flexible. They are, they are negotiating pressures from uh, below and, and, and from the bottom. But um, in order to understand the specificity, the, the, you see that the relationship that um, Mukhtars have with their citizens is a very, or let's say the other way around, the, the relations that citizens have with the Mukhtar are quite different from the relations that people have with all the public agents. So, because Mukhtars are the only public officials, let's say the public officials on whom local inhabitants can exercise some form of power, some for, form of pressure, uh, much more than on a mayor or municipal councilor, because also they, you know, they see them every day on the street and so on. So, of course, then Mukhtars are um, indebted to their inhabitants, to their electors, and they have, uh, you know, integrated the imperative of satisfying their inhabitants. So, they... Mukhtars, they do not behave like field bureaucrats, at least when you observe them on the street and everything. Uh, but they present themselves always as serving the inhabitants. So, and this has very concrete effects. For example, while Mukhtars are supposed officially to enforce the laws and regulations, they do not always show much diligence in this task. For example, they are supposed to denounce, you know, irregularities, etc. But mostly, I mean, they don't always denounce. At least they don't denounce everything, every irregularity that they know. They have the power to do so. But of course, if they do so too much, uh, probably they won't be re-elected because, as you know, everybody has some, something to hide. So, no, and Mukhtars know many things about, you know, local people. So they have, in a, in a way, uh, what I observed is that sometimes they re really protect sometimes people from state regulations or, for example, they would um, at some points, um, um, you know, not, as I said, not denounce or inform people about uh, what they risk as sanctions if they do this and that and that they should be cautious. Not uh, um, as a, um, but in order to protect the people, so they would, you know, operate as as rendering services to the people, and this is um, precisely for this reason that people resort to the Mukhtars. I think what is also striking, and what I was saying when I, when I was um, mentioning that Mukhtars are still very functional even in a very bureaucratized uh, environment is that people recourse precisely to the Mukhtar because of this specific relationship. That is, Mukhtars are, no, they are considered as in some kind of part of the state, but also neighbors. And so somebody that you can ask help or you can ask some support or you can explain your situation when it doesn't fit in the boxes, in the official boxes, which is very often. And so motors are uh, one of the privileged recourses of people in, in their strategies for circumventing the rules. So that's really important to understand that it's precisely because of that broader bureaucratized, sometimes uh, oppressive context. So Mukhtars, but it is also important to keep in mind that Mukhtars cannot always defend the people and that even if they perform as always helping the people, that's not always what they do. So they have, you know, they have a very hard position, I must say. Um, and, uh, and so they have to, you know, um, keep the confidence of the institutions like municipality, like governorship, etc., 
with whom they have to work at the same time. So they have, you know, to not uh, circumvent the rules too much or not do it too openly. So it's always a play on what is visible and what is invisible, a play on formality and informality. And I found this interesting because, you know, um, because uh, what I could observe there is uh, informal politics uh, in a very official state institutions. So that is really striking because, you know, when much of the literature on, you know, low politics or informal politics, etc., cetera, uh, is, um, looks actually at situations and, and settings outside the state institutions. And here, um, my challenge was to look at that uh, in, the, on, in the very scope of state, in, on state institution. Okay, so there's a specific state institution, but still. And here's I could see much circumventing and informality uh, happening. And so that was very interesting to me uh, to what extent Lucas actually very regularly than the official order. At least they are expected by the people, by much of the many, much of the people, to be able to bend the order. And it is I, I in the chap in the book there is a chapter circumventing the rules and how uh, Mukhtars are expected because of this image that uh, they perform. They are expected to uh, give some privileges to the people and help them. And I, I document this I, on, on the, with the analyzing the, uh, the payment of the fees that people are, are supposed to pay when, they, when the Mukhtar issues a, a document or a declaration. And there is a constant play and negotiation of the fees. And so here it's fascinating because you see that they, uh, to what extent the fee, which is an official fee, it is written on the walls, it is regulated by the Ministry of Interior or by the governorship. And it's even if it's written on the, on the wall, you know, it becomes part of a negotiation of this relationship of the Mukhtars with the people. And so this is fascinating to see this, uh, how uh, this social negotiation becomes part of officiality. And one of the conclusions of the book is that Mukhtars are a kind of um, a face of the state to, to take up the, um, um, the title of the book of Yael uh, uh, um, is one face of the state, not the only one. But this is a, a very specific face of the state because is, is this is an amicable, is this is a human kind of face of the state. This, and, and they're um, performing as, you know, uh, helping the inhabitants. This gives the impression that you can negotiate with the Turkish state. And this actually allows some, to some extent, kinds of negotiation and arrangements uh, with the official institutions. And I think this is one of the uh, conclusions of the book, uh, is that this is actually institutionalized as such in the Turkish state. Well, so this brings me to uh, the last thing I really wanted to talk about, which is uh, the changes that have happened the last, say, two decades. Uh, on the one hand, you've mentioned already that there's computerized aspects. So maybe first, I'd like us to talk a little about how Mukhtars have uh, reacted uh, to this computerization of their of jobs, and how are they maintaining this informality you're talking about? Given that, yeah, I think uh, for Mukhtars it is it has been complicated this uh, computerization first because you know they are not very uh, fond of computers. <laughs> So to say, because I mean, their way of working is more about orality, etc. They are not, you know, very. They they have their education level is much lower than, for example, the of course much lower than any bureaucrats, but also lower than municipal councillors and so on. So they are not very at ease with those tools. So, but they had to, you know, uh, get into that, and that's not always easy. 
But what is very interesting here is that it's important to keep in mind that computerization is a way uh, to grasp reality, social reality that has limits. And those limits are important. Uh, and, and so what happens is that Mufas felt some kind of deprivation with this trends to computerization registers, for example, of people, computerized registers, etc. And, and their workload has uh, decreased, actually. Their workload has decreased. On the one hand, this was a good news for them because some motors have in the big um, neighborhoods have, have a very big workload. But on the other hand, this has also big uh, inconvenience for motors is that they the most money they were able to earn back then is uh, the fees from the um, official documents that they issued. So if they issue less documents, this means less revenue. So um, it was very uh, ambiguous. But what is important to me is that many people, citizens, uh, try to... Uh, it's important that you have this bureaucratization, uh, computerization, but it's only partly. I mean, um, for example, if you want to get some certificates, you can uh, do that on the internet, and many people do that on the internet when they are able to use, you know, these computerized things and uh, platforms and so on. Uh, but many people don't feel that they can do that, so they feel uneasy with uh, these things. And you can still get your certificates and official documents from the MUFTA. So both uh, are. Uh, coexisting, so it has not disappeared. But it's interesting to see that if you want to get those documents from the motors, you have to pay. But again, as I said, you can, you can negotiate the payment. But still, um, so even if you have to pay, many people tend to prefer going to the motor for the documents than going into a computer where they feel uneasy and, and they don't understand and so on. And, so there is a kind of you know uh, computer literacy issue here also. So then people still uh, recourse to the motors for that. But what is more even more interesting to me is it the official institutions also recourse to the motors because now that uh, data about the people are much more computerized than before with with very broad databases and so on. But still, as I said, there are many things that are not recorded in this uh, databases. And so it is very often that motors get called by, um, it can be police officers. I saw several instances of that. For example, police officers tracking uh, people uh, without uh, um, being able to locate them and asking the motors, does that person really live here and where and can you call him or her etc and it's very striking i mean police officer or even intelligence people also you know because the knowledge because uh, motors are supposed to have uh, real knowledge i mean when i say real i mean based on experience uh, everyday experience and and reputation and also um on 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 uh, you know uh, gossip also of the people and so um, and this is con actually sometimes considered as more better knowledge than what is recorded. So uh, it's important to keep in mind that even official institutions have recourse to the motors for their testimony. And so as they are still considered as a very trustful. Not very trustworthy. They are still considered as a source of information and as complementary to that computerized databases that are not consider always considered as as you know um, something you can trust. Well, so the thing, the final question I'd like to ask. You know, we've gone for about 50 minutes without mentioning uh, the Justice and Development Party, I believe, which is, I think, impressive for a discussion of contemporary Turkey. But probably we shouldn't uh, hold to that. I think it would be worth discussing. We, there's been a government now that's been in power for about 20 years. 
And so you suggest that there is something of a coherent Mukhtar policy that the uh, AKP has been uh, pursuing. Can you, we conclude maybe by you talking a bit about this and um, what, what its effects are, how we can see it uh, playing out? Yeah, actually, yes, there has been a coherent Mukhtar policy, but not for the whole at the period of the AKP in power. It has been on a very specific time, and this is, again, important in order to understand what that means. Uh, actually, this um, has, I would say, this has begun at the, in the early 2010s, so, and for a few years, and very specifically, this is a period where um, there was a Gizi movement, and this Gizi movement, of course, um, fueled the kind of politicization of local issues and, and urban governance uh, in general. So, and and then uh, it was this Mukhtar policy actually happened when. Um, Erdogan became the president in 2014 and in the years just before and just after. And so what is it about? Actually, there is a symbolic, uh, when I say symbolic, it's not only symbolic, but uh, what happened and was very much widespread in the media and so on is that uh, Erdogan, when he became the president, uh, he began to organize very big Mukhtar meetings, gathering like 400, 500 Mukhtars every month at the presidency palace and uh, giving some kind of speeches to them. And the speeches being, you know, recorded on the media and commented also in the media, etc. And speeches actually about general policy, not really on, on Mukhtar issues mainly. And so this was very interesting because this, uh, the aim of this was actually he was to receive all Mukhtars. So Mukhtars are about 50,000, um, all Mukhtars in a few years. And this policy actually stopped in late 2018. And it was not, uh, the ambition was not totally uh, uh, done because uh, probably they, about half of the Mukhtars, 20,000, 25,000 Mukhtars were received, which is again a very big achievement, actually, which is a very big achievement. And so what's interesting is that that Mukhtars are considered in Turkey as a not very, you know, um, prestigious position, it's a, especially among politicians. I mean, this is the lowest level, so they are considered as no, not very valuable. And um, and so it was striking. It was the first time a president ever bothered to you know consider the Mukhtars, and and so in a very also prestigious setting and so on. And also in his discourses saying how important the Mukhtars were because they were the basis of democracy as being elected on a very local level, very close to the people. And so uh, he tried also to give some very big value to their work. And that was uh, first in Turkish history, actually. And so it's a very, very interesting because <laughs> as I began my research in the, in the early 2010s, it was before the, uh, these Mukhtar meetings. And many of my colleagues didn't really understood, understand sorry, why I was interested in Mukhtars because they seem so unimportant and so have no power and so on. So and so I always had to explain why I was interested in Mukhtars and how I saw it was important and so on. And then after Erdogan made this began doing this Mukhtar meeting, then nobody actually asked me anymore because they well to a certain extent Erdogan gave me right actually. So uh, even if his interest in Mutars is different than mine, probably. So what I want to see here is say here is that this uh, symbolic importance he gave to Mutars is, is was actually a way of for I think for everyone to to um, to perform as being close to the people and also to also have this dimension of you know, spreading his word to the Turkish people. Uh, because it was uh, like a very big audience and also uh, 
he uh, was asking the Mukhtars to spread his work uh, into their neighborhoods or villages, and this was on the media everywhere and so on. So it was a very big opportunity to perform this um, presence of the people kind of image. Uh, but beyond that, there was another dimension of this policy, which is which, which actually was about um, binding the Mukhtars more to the state and especially to the executive. And by why do I say that? Because in that period, the allowance of the Mukhtars was uh, increased very much. It was uh, for the first time it became. Mm, uh, it became more than the minimum wage, which it, before it was really a very, very low allowance that was much lower than the minimum wage, which meant that you can't, you know, really make a living out of this. But now it has become, you know, like the, a little bit more than the minimum wage. So and so this has made the Mukhtars in a way more, uh, um, more uh, bound to the state and less financially bound to the fees that the residents pay to them. So this has increased the dependency of the Mukhtars to the state apparatus and state rationals. And so there have been other measures like in improving their working conditions, improving their social security, etc., etc. Uh, rational of this uh, policy was to um, uh, take Mukhtars as, uh, as relays of the state more than it was before. And actually Erdogan also say that in, in his speeches that uh, he was expecting from Mukhtars to denounce terrorists and so on. This was especially, I mean, the, also the period of the uh, end of the peace process, etc., with, um, with the Kurdish issue. And so it was a very, very tense um, period. And, and so taking the Mukhtars as a relays of the state. And, and so this was um, actually important and there is another dimension to this, which is not, which is, I think, broader and also older, is that um, I had said that Mukhtars are not bound, of, at least uh, officially and totally, to party rationals. But because actually state uh, institutions have become more politicized in the in the course of the AKP period, as AKP was becoming, you know, hegemonic in every single state institution, also in the bureaucracy and so on, uh, this also had effects on Mukhtars because Mukhtars actually, I didn't say that before, but they have no budget, they have no means. The only thing they can do for the people is to channel means, channel resources, but these resources are the municipal resources or uh, res uh, resources of the governorships, they are uh, so um, Mukhtars are only channels, and that's why they have to keep good relationships with those uh, other institutions, which are the resource providers. And so, with those institutions becoming um, overwhelmingly dominated by the AKP, this had uh, also this was incentives for Mukhtars, it was hard to to uh, be very autonomous from party politics and the uh, AKP. And so, so this was also another kind of dimension of this broader development. So what happened now is this, I think there has been a very, uh, in the last years, a politicization of the Mukhtar institution and Mukhtar had been quite autonomous from party rationals between the 1980s and I would say uh, late, 2000s, but now I wouldn't be so assertive, and I would say that this autonomy has decreased actually, and this made and this has made the Mukhtar position even harder. It is not only between state and society, but also party politics, and this uh, is a very tense position to be held into this Turkey. Hmm. Well, thank you. That's that's very interesting food for thought. Um, let me let me just conclude by by asking. Uh, this book is out. It's published. People can go and read it, and I think they should because there's lots of specific, interesting details that you include in it about these different sites that you uh, looked at, these different Mukhtars you talked to throughout the city of Istanbul. So I really enjoyed reading it and hope people will also go and read it. Uh, with this out, though, 
what is the project you're working on now? Uh, what, what are you going to be doing next? Yeah, well, actually, um, I, I began working on another project, and uh, this is a collective project about, about the production. It's called Production of Electoral Truths. It studies the ways in which electoral truths or the trust in elections is produced uh, or, or not. Uh, through material, techno, sorry, material, technological, and political dynamics. So it, it actually, this project starts from the statement that um, elections in many parts of the world ha, have been, uh, have now a very big technicality and, and, and they are observers and so on, they are controlled everywhere, but uh, this doesn't lead to a greater adherence to the results. So this is about questioning the complexity of uh, the making of the trust in the electoral results. And here I study the Turkish dimension of, of this process, which is interesting because the trust in election has decreased in Turkey in the last 10 years, I would say, more or less. And, and here we have very interesting parallels with the United States, with Brazil, with Kenya, with many parts of the world. So this is a broader kind of trend. Uh, but I began actually interesting in this making of the electoral uh, truths by actually working on Muhtars because he played a very big uh, role in uh, organizing the elections at uh, several uh, stages. And so I, I this there is actually kind of continuity between both projects. But so... So I looked at basically at the multiple actors involved in the organization and control of elections. So uh, parties, bureaucracies, muhtars, experts, judges, etc. NGOs, of course, like uh, uh, observation NGOs and voters themselves. And so, uh, so this is a new project and uh, I, I am looking forward uh, to doing the uh, field research on that and I will keep you informed about the book to come out in 10 years or so. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the next year promises to be a very uh, interesting one for doing research during. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for uh, taking the time to talk about your book. I really enjoyed reading it. And, uh, thank you. I really, um, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to talk to you. I hope other people will take the time as well to read it. So thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.